Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we're going to continue our series of podcasts about the COVID infection in children. Dragon Bites host, Dr Thomas Cromarty, was joined by Dr Jennifer Evans, a general paediatrician with an interest in infectious diseases, and together they discussed PIMS-TS. Anyway, let's get started. Well, thanks very much for joining us again on another podcast. Um, For our next edition, we've got a wonderful uh, person joining us called Dr. Jennifer Evans, and she uh, works in Wales. I'll let her introduce some of her specialist interests uh, shortly, but we're hoping to cover um, a little bit more about the acute aspects of uh, COVID and, and how that's affected children and families in Wales. So um, Jennifer, if we could hear a little bit about some of your specialist interests, please. Thank you. Hello, Tom. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I uh, Yeah, I am a um, paediatrician with a specialist interest in infection and immunology Um, and more recently I've also um, worked uh, more extensively in palliative care so what an interesting sort of mixture of specialist interests but my background is very much in infection and immunology so uh, COVID really uh, 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 fits my bill. So I thought uh, sometimes the best place to start is to get a hold of some definitions so we know what we're talking about um and we're going to cover aspects of covid and aspects of uh what we'll find more about with pims ts so hopefully just to start with some definitions of what we are expecting to talk about with regard to covid and with pims in in the uk so um COVID is the commonly used name for the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus, a coronavirus that um, appeared at the end of um, uh, 2019, in December 2019, um, and causing a a respiratory illness, which spread very quickly um, through the early months of 2020. And I'm sure we're all aware that by the end of March, 2020, we were in lockdown because of the rapidly um, spreading um, number of cases of uh, respiratory COVID. Um, it uh, and initially, um, children, fortunately, uh, were um, were not severely affected. Definitely not so um, uh, compared to the adult population who were seeing, as we know, scores and scores of uh, patients coming in and really very ill patients on intensive care units. And we weren't seeing that. And I remember um, in the early days of uh, 2020, sort of scouring the literature, looking at the other uh, other countries who were affected before us. I remember Italy was um, one of the uh, early European countries to be affected and looking for um, um, who, how many children were being affected, were children coming into hospital, were children with other disorders being affected. And it, it was clear from very early on that children appeared to be much less affected than adults. I think this must be really hard for the few people, because there are people whose children have been badly affected by this. And sadly, there have been a handful of, of um 
paediatric deaths attributed to COVID. So it must be really hard for people like that to, to hear. Um, but in terms of sort of managing a situation and trying to work out what to expect. It was uh, fortunate, you know, for the paediatric population that in the whole, um, uh, children were not severely affected and we didn't see these big waves of admission that we that, that our adult colleagues saw. Okay. And, and so when did things start being a problem for, a significant problem for children? Well, I think it stayed... Um, same all the way through from a point of view of acute respiratory COVID. So um, it can cause respiratory symptoms, it can cause hypoxia, a chest infection with sort of pneumonia type um, uh, findings on chest x-ray and, and managed very much like a pneumonic process. And every time a new variant sort of come in, I think everybody sort of w- watches to wait to see whether children are going to be affected more than they were with a different variant mm-hmm. or less. But it stayed pretty sort of um, stable and the numbers of cases of respiratory COVID being admitted to our hospitals have stayed pretty stable with each wave that's come through. But then um, it was uh, middle of April uh, 2020. So um, coming up for a month um, after the the beginning of the first lockdown um, that we um, saw our first cases of what became known then as PIMS-TS. So um, I remember this very well because an alert went out from um, the Royal College uh, to say that um, in about the second week of um, April, uh, eight children were admitted over a very short period of time to intensive care at the Evelina in London with a multi-system inflammatory disorder, which had similarities to both Kawasaki disease, but also to toxic shock syndrome. And it wasn't known whether this was related to COVID or not, but it seemed a little bit of a coincidence that a sort of an unusual new disease was presenting at the same time, you know, at the same time as we were seeing a lot of cases of COVID. Um, so the alert went out and that paper was written up very quickly by the team at Evelina. And um, then, um, and I can remember our very first suspected case then came on the 29th of April. Um, and, um, we have continued to see a steady stream with each wave of um, uh, COVID infection. We've seen cases of this pediatric, uh, this multi-system inflammatory disorder coming in four to six weeks after the um, after a person has had a COVID infection. So it doesn't definitely seems um, it, uh, the case that it is related to COVID. And definitely, if you look at our admissions to the hospitals across South Wales. You can see waves of admissions with um, uh, with systemic inflammation um, following the waves of um, uh, the different variants of, um, of infection. So, sorry, we we're going to say. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, well, there's so many things that I want to delve a bit deeper into out of that. Um, definitely, we're going to talk a bit more about PIMS and about how if that's changed with different waves and different variants. Um, as we're going to come on to them later, um, I thought we'd just concentrate on a, acute COVID to start with. And we talked about the respiratory virus. Did did we also, respiratory effects, did we also see, you know, all kinds of different presentations, whether that was tummy pain and gastroenteritis uh, that we also attributed to it? Yes, I think you know, we were all really keen at the beginning to sort of um, log what symptoms people were experiencing uh, when they tested positive for COVID. Because always the challenge is, is whether um, 
these are all attributable to COVID or whether they've got something else and just happen to have COVID. So, um, but the sort of classic symptoms were um, a cough, a sore throat, a fever, and um, a, a loss of taste and smell, which um, children could describe, you know, older children could describe, which was exactly the same as we were seeing in adults. I think, you know, what the adults were seeing was also then this um, very severe sort of inflammatory response about a week or 10 days after the first symptoms appeared. And I think a lot of the cases that ended up on intensive care unit were were um, these individuals who were having um, uh, really, really marked inflammation, a sort of um, almost like a biphasic sort of type illness. Um, and uh, fortunately, we weren't um, seeing that. But then we did see um, this uh, delayed inflammatory response sort of later on so it just it, it does raise loads and loads of questions about what's going on with the host immune response and do we have some idea of why that i mean any even kind of hypothetical ideas of why there might be a difference between children and adults in their response yes i think there's a lot of work about how the virus gets into the cell um uh, into the cells and whether children have fewer uh receptors on the cells that might be um uh responsible for allowing um the virus to invade um so a lot of work has been going on to that and i'm i'm sure that um uh more and more stuff will come out as time passes by and and just answering that question then about um subsequent variants and the change in presentations between uh, for children, um, is it is it just related to the number of children that are being infected, or or have we seen a change in the pathology that's coming? Well, I think it's, it's difficult because I think the degree of exposure has been very different different with different waves. Because if you think back to that very first lockdown, everybody was staying at home, everybody was going out for an hour a day for a, wa- uh, a mm. walk. Um, so children and children were definitely not in school and weren't really seeing anybody else other than um, their. Um, siblings and um, and we know that the reports of other infectious diseases just completely went down at that time so um, in the very first wave a lot of children weren't exposed so it was only then in the subsequent wave sort of that uh, late summer and then through the autumn of 2020 when they were back in school that they started to become infected so we did see a few more cases then but I think that was related to exposure um, rather than um, them being more susceptible to that variant. I think you can't really do a proper um, uh, sort of comparison because the, 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 living, the living situation was so different um, um, mm. when you compare the different waves. But we definitely haven't seen... Um, we definitely haven't seen sort of more um, more severe cases as the variants have gone on. And I think the feeling is that um, they're actually probably less severe. And now, of course, the whole thing is being um, uh, modified as well by immunisation because we've mm. immunised teenagers um, uh, with uh, sort of two and then plus uh, booster doses. The five to 11-year-olds are now being immunised. So, of course, that's having an effect as well on um, yeah. Yeah, how, how children are presenting. And I suppose children who've had previously had infections as well um it's going to have yes, an impact so, so lots of children are, are, are getting it again yes yeah, so that's very clear that this is something that um uh, we're not going to get just once great and so are we are we it, it seems from my experience so far that the actual treatment wise is is very much supportive as as it is for many other viruses when you come to the acute condition well, interestingly, and I think um, I'm sure 
other people who talk to you will talk to you about the recovery trial. Um, and the recovery trial has been a real, real shining sort of point of, uh, of this pandemic. Um, so a trial that was set up um, as a platform um, to assess how best to manage um, individuals with um, COVID who are admitted to hospital. Um, so answering the question about that, it's just as important to answer a question about whether a treatment works or whether a treatment doesn't work. As you know, on social media, you know, um, rumours go round about this drug works, this drug um, doesn't work, you must get hold of this. I can remember at the beginning thinking, oh, we've got to have hydroxychloroquine. You know. And so very, very important questions were able to be answered by that trial and that trial has demonstrated uh, definitely that um, uh, steroids um, um, given to in the form of dexamethasone given to um, people admitted to hospital who were hypoxic had um, um, brought about a survival um, benefit um, also um, um, Toxilizumab has been shown to be um, effective in those with um, uh, severe disease. Um, the use of monoclonal antibody infusions in those who mount a poor antibody response. And most recently, baricitinib um, um, has been shown to be um, to um, give a survival benefit for people hospitalised. So, um, yes, treatment is supportive, but actually there is um, medication that has been um, uh or interventions have also been shown to confer a survival benefit. And we, um, paediatrics, joined uh, the recovery platform. Um, and obviously it's difficult to um, enrol as many children as, as the adults. The adults have enrolled tens of thousands of individuals. It's a real triumph, this trial. Um, and um, uh, But we've been able to extrapolate some of the results from um uh, that study to um, develop pediatric treatment pathways. So um, uh, steroids are definitely a mainstay of treatment if children are admitted with COVID and are hypoxic. So we do use steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, antivirals. There is an antiviral remdesivir that has been used. There are not. There's not very strong trial data to see whether or not it um, 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 confers a survival benefit. Or, um, but we um, are tending. To uh, towards using that, or many paediatricians are tending towards using that in hospitalised patients. Um, and also, the, um, baricitinib would also be considered for children. So there are um, there are treatments as well as supportive care, definitely. Yeah, I definitely recognise that lots of other countries are jealous, aren't they, of the of the um, of the recovery trial and the ability for that to be kind of quite quite simple in its design and its ability to move treatments in and out so are there are there treatments which were tried in recovery and within pediatrics and found to offer no benefit so they were removed well in the recovery there were treatments that were found to offer no benefit so um hydroxychloroquine was um shown to offer no benefit um and also the that was quite an important observation about the monoclonal antibodies it was only of use in a certain subgroup of patients not in everybody um so that led to sort of um, antibody testing people on admission um mm. so i haven't got the list in front of me but yes mm. several treatments have been um excluded as well as being as well as now becoming um routine standard of care and, you know it's a really pragmatic study um that uh enabled many many people to train uh, to be able to consent um for entry and um uh, uh, to get people into those studies quickly to answer those questions as quickly as possible possible that's definitely 
but it will have saved lives definitely hmm. and so if if we're going to talk on a kind of a practical approach of what what we're doing at the moment when it comes to um treating children who have come in with with symptoms of um respiratory symptoms at what threshold are they getting to what kind of investigations are we doing um you know so everybody yeah, on a practical approach can't move without getting a COVID swab now. So you know exactly. Um, so everybody gets a, a a throat swab for COVID, and I think um, and and that brings about its own challenges because it is now so common in the population that we've really got to make sure that that is what you're dealing with. And we'll talk about when we talk about PIMS again in a minute. That is absolute cornerstone of um management of PIMS is actually making sure that is what you're looking at and you're not ignoring other possibilities so just because a child uh tests positive on the throat swab for COVID that doesn't mean that that's what's causing um uh, their illness so you've got to make sure that you look for other things as well and by far the majority of children don't need any additional treatment it's when they get admitted to hospital they're hypoxic they have chest x-ray changes that you think um, uh, you might think, well, we need to intervene here. And as I say, once they're hypo, they're, and the Royal College have worked very hard to uh, the Royal College of Pediatricians have worked very hard to put out sort of standardised guidelines, and we've developed our local own local guidelines um, based on that. Um, so for me, um, uh, if a child is um, hypoxic and tests positive for COVID and nothing else there, then um, would, would I would put them on steroids and would give them dexamethasone. Um, they're very early on in the infection. They're also considered using um, remdesivir on compassionate use. Um, and we've had some slightly older children who appear to have behaved a little bit more like adults. And if they've got a very ongoing, very high inflammatory response, we have considered then the use of um, sort of biologicals such as toxilizumab to reduce that inflammatory response, but only use that once or twice. The... Um, uh, the number of children presenting like this are still relatively few. So um, the um, value of having a sort of a local MDT, having a group of people um, uh, and the network of sort of infectious disease paediatricians across the UK has been invaluable here. Being able to phone a friend, being able to link regularly with colleagues um, because um, the numbers are still so relatively small. The personal experience is still very small. I've probably seen... Um, 10 um, very bad acute respiratory COVID. Seen an awful lot of, um, you know, children with COVID, but not particularly, but but when they're really unwell and you're starting to think about these other medications, it's really it's important to sort of um, compare notes with colleagues. Hmm. It's, it seems like that was another one of the real success stories of, um, you know, getting some multidisciplinary approach and, and be able to, yeah, like you say, uh, speak to colleagues across the country and sometimes across the world to figure out what's the best thing to do. Yes, absolutely. I was wondering if there's a sense of, like we were talking about just then, patients coming in because of the community transmission rate so high of coming in because of their infection or as well as their infection. Is there any sense of the like numbers wise? Um, I wouldn't really, really know because I'm not really at the front line in the CAE, yeah. but I think probably um, I think there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of just happening to have. Yeah, yeah, fine. Um, I think it might be a good opportunity to then move on more to talking about um, PIMS. Then, so what does that what does that stand for? Yeah, no, I know. I thought you were going to ask me that. 
um, a sort of pediatric um, inflammatory multi-system in the time in the time of uh, SARS-CoV-2, I think. <laughs> okay, uh, and and it's also known as Miss C in um, uh, the Americans and WHO call it Miss C M I S hyphen C. Uh, so uh, multi-system uh, inflammatory um, syndrome um, in the time of COVID, in COVID. So if, you're, if you so wanted got... to look it up, you'd have to Google both of those things. <laughs> yeah, search terms. Um, and how are we going to pick these patients out? Yeah, so um, well, the first uh, the first group that were described um, described children with a systemic inflammatory uh, response um, with often with, with shock with hypotension um, with myocardial dysfunction and then often the sort of some of the, the things that we associate with um, Kawasaki disease with rash red eyes red lips um, but I think what was unusual was was the shock and the myocardial dysfunction um, and a lot of them have um, gastrointestinal involvement. You know, taking the history from a lot of these patients, and a lot of parents sort of say the first symptom was complaining of abdominal pain and some diarrhoea. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, a paper came out of Great Ormond Street fairly early on, describing the abdominal symptoms and um, ab- and abdominal signs on ultrasound of a sort of thickened terminal ileum and uh, lymphadenopathy. Um, and indeed, some of these. Um, uh, children were presenting to surgeons as query appendicitis and vice versa we were actually making the call and saying this was PIMS and they actually had appendicitis so very mm-hmm. important for co-working between the teams and making sure awareness across the board um, and how, how long are we talking after their initial presumed initial um probably around about four weeks, four weeks. Uh, most of them appear to be about four weeks and do we get the feeling that there's a particular group of people um, who are susceptible to either this or to the kind of more severe end of the uh, the acute respiratory illness? Well, we're talking about PIMS, first of all. I think um, uh, it was felt that p- potentially more common in Asian and Afro-Caribbean children. Of course, the s- series are actually very small, and I suppose it depends on which communities um, it's first presenting in. But I think actually the epidemiological data that's being really carefully gathered across the world will provide us more information on that mm-hmm. um, in the future. But I think really it's children who are um, previously well. You know, the, these are children who, um, you know, in the main have never been unwell before. Um, and they and so that brings, they become, develop a life-threatening illness very, very quickly. So mm. that was a, a, its own sort of shock. Um, and um, so... I think we'll have to wait for those, those sort of epidemiological studies to see um, really if there really is a propensity in different racial groups. Or, but but we're seeing them across the board here. And, and in adults, they talk about, you know, comorbidities, obesity and other kind of risk factors like that. Do we see that in children as well? Yes, I think so. And I think that's so the risk factors for severe acute respiratory COVID are very different to PIMS. So they're, 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 they're different groups of patients. Yes, so yes I think um, obesity, neurodisability um, are, um, are risk factors for severe respiratory COVID. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Um, and then so coming on more to PIMS then so when am I I'm suspecting with those various kind of symptoms and signs that you've said already um, how's that going to change my investigations that I'm doing when you know when I see one of these patients well I think it's really very important to um, 
make sure that they're worked up. Uh, these are children who are presenting with fever and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes evidence of shock, sometimes evidence of an acute abdomen. So you've really got to bear in mind that has this child got a severe bacterial infection? Um, and uh, make sure that we don't forget about the differential diagnosis. So, um, yes, you might uh, be thinking about PIMS, but you've got to think about um, toxic shock and you've got to think about invasive bacterial infection. So um, uh, it's very important that when they are um, histories taken and, um, and they're examined, you've got to bear those things in mind. And these children do need broad spectrum antibiotics following appropriate sort of blood cultures. Um, uh, to make sure that we don't miss anything. Mm. And I think it's uh, that's been really interesting and it'll be interesting to reflect upon this about um, uh, how when something becomes very sort of common or not, but when something appears and something is very talked about very frequently, you know, you start seeing it, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and you, you've got to say to yourself, I must take a few steps back and look at the bigger picture. And I think, you know, I've been called a lot um, from colleagues across uh, um, the country, uh, across South Wales, discussing, um, I, I, I think I might have a case of PIMS. And I remember um, in the early days sort of saying to them, well, if you were seeing this a year ago, what would you think it is? Mm. Um, and uh, I think that for me, um, and I think sometimes when I sort of say things like that to people, they think, oh, she's but I'm actually saying it to me as well. You know, that's that's a note to self. Um, and I suppose uh, I've seen um, definitely uh, JIA um, present and thinking it's um, PIMS to start with. I've seen a couple of cases of that. So a case of Crohn's disease um, and the careful taking of the history brought brought both of those things out. And actually, sometimes the response to the treatment has resulted then in the uh, the diagnosis of JIA. It's been an unusual response to treatment, and it's sort of very quickly sort of relapsed. And uh, um, so um, I think um, bacterial infection and, and um, case of pyelonephritis, so um, a liver abscess. So you've got to really think about your differential diagnosis of a child presenting severely ill with fever so PIMS is one thing but don't forget about everything that we used to see so uh, that's that's a really really important message um, it's getting harder now to actually say well before COVID you know we're talking two years ago you know when was that um, so you know if I'm still saying that in 10 years you know that it's important <laughs> be. but I think that's a very important thing what else could this be and take two steps back so we do look for markers of inflammation, um, and I think that's very important. I think, um, uh, interestingly, a lot of the children presenting with PIMS appear to be lymphopenic, um, so have a, a low lymphocyte count. Um, but again, that's not a diagnostic criteria. We've started using inflammatory markers that we um, haven't really used widely before, and that's also can sometimes bring about some confusion. So um, we've um, on the list of investigations for PIMS, obviously as a CRP, procalcitonin, but also D-dimers, and mm. um, uh, and then um, markers for myocardial injury, so troponin, for example, and they've sort of become known as the PIMS bloods, and <laughs> that's not totally anybody's. You know, they are markers of inflammation or markers of myocardial damage, and they could be abnormal in other things as well. Just because they're raised doesn't mean that this is PIMS. I think that's a really important message. 
Um, so, but they are markers of systemic inflammation, and that's what's associated with this condition. And again, there's the overlap also with Kawasaki disease. So, um, in pedi- all of us that worked in pediatrics and are familiar with Kawasaki disease, it's the thing that always comes up in exams as well. You know, there's um, these are children, you know, under five with more than five days fever, uh, with rash, black lips, miserable red eyes. And there were definitely um, cases that looked more like Kawasaki disease than like these other slightly older children who were presenting with sort of um, um, inflammation and hypotension. Um, but there's definitely a, a, a mixture in there. And in, in our sort of first wave, which I would describe as being um, May through to August in 2020, we saw a lot of we saw a lot more Kawasaki disease than we would normally see. Um, and not so many of these sort of children with um, systemic inflammation and hypotension. And definitely then towards the end of 2020, we started seeing those children. So I can't explain that and why different waves brought different patterns of disease. Um, But definitely the first um, case that we saw was a baby and she had a sort of mixture of, uh, she was definitely shocked and that was, um, and, um, uh, but she didn't have much in the way of classic sort of Kawasaki uh, symptoms, but she went on to develop very, very significant coronary aneurysms, which we know are the, um, you know, the hallmark of Kawasaki disease. So there's a lot of mixing and different sort of presentations and um, it'll probably all get teased out in the end, but uh, a big variation in presentation. Well, I won't ask you to tease it out now, um, but um was there any link between the, you know, the the severity of uh, the acute illness and then the severity of PIMS? No, by far the majority of these children had had a, uh, either no recognisable um, uh, COVID acute COVID infection um, and um, uh, b- before their PIMS, and a lot of them really only knew was because they'd all gone to be tested. Uh, and you know, testing really sort of reached its peak, sort of you know, during sort of the early part of twenty twenty one. So everybody really knew, you know, that they'd had it. Um, whereas if you think back again, you know, every time we got a rhinovirus, we went and have a test. You know, we'd, it, we um, we know an awful lot more about sort of what diseases follow other things. But no, none of them. I can't remember anybody ever, you know, having had a bad COVID infe- respiratory COVID infection. Okay. Uh, and you just touched upon then the um, some of the complications um, and the aneurysms being one of them. It, I remember at the start because um, I was working, at, you know, in the same hospital as you at that time. Um, have those continued to be an issue? Um, and has the uh, the numbers of PIMS continued with each wave to be the same, or is it becoming less of no, a problem? No, I think. Um... I think the numbers appear to be going down, uh, uh, and I think um, we're still seeing cases. But I, I graphed our cases um, um, a few weeks ago just to see, uh, and, and you can see definite waves of cases following Alpha, following Delta, following um, uh, Omicron, and um, uh, and so. But we're not seeing. So I hesitate to say this, you know, but, you know, we're not seeing as many cases, as, as I think, as related to the number of underlying infections as we were um, in 2020, early 2021. So we do still see some cases, but not nearly as many, um, which is good. 
um, and uh, also we're immunising children. So it's whether um, um, there's some thought that actually immunising against uh, COVID may well also be providing some protection. Um, so although some children are still getting COVID, but they're getting mild COVID, um, it's possible that the, the immune mod- modified immune response means that they're not going to present with PIMS. Um, okay. So it's yeah. not gone down to nothing, um, but we're still seeing some cases. And interestingly, the last two that I've been asked about have been much more looking much more like conventional Kawasaki disease. So complications wise and, and long term sequelae of having had this um, and we we're going to do uh, a whole topic on long COVID later on. But just regarding things like aneurysms and, and myocarditis and those things, do they tend to leave long-standing effects? Well, obviously, we're still in early days, so the longest yeah. time people have been followed up has been two years. I think um, the sort of short-term, long-term effects, sort of, you know, the three to six months afterwards, um, can um, um, can really take it out of you. This is a big hit. This is a big inflammatory response. Um, the myocardial dysfunction does um, appear to... Um, be reversible um and um i personally haven't uh, met any patients with any sort of long-standing myocardial dysfunction um and um uh, it, it very often sort of uh, with with um uh, anti-inflammatory treatment it re- very often improves very quickly and definitely by the sort of two-week echocardiogram uh, is back to normal um okay. so we have had um there have been some cases of um uh, coronary artery disease particularly in sort of younger children with more kawasaki type picture so obviously they th- th- that is a long-term sequela um i think the um psychological effects of this are very significant these are um children who are very well and become very unwell uh, end up on often on itu a lot of the ones we've had here haven't actually needed intubating so they've experienced that intensive care admission but being perfectly aware of what's going on so actually um and lots of concern about their heart and things like that and that really mustn't be underestimated and you know it really sort of highlights the need for acute psychology which we don't have and i think you know i i really would have liked to have had um psychology involvement in the early sort of um uh, convalescence of these children i think that would have been invaluable um yeah, I certainly think we could probably do a, a whole other podcast on psychological effects of acute and long term and all the other issues that we've raised in pediatrics. Um, and certainly when I had dealt with a few patients at the start, one of the overriding kind of symptoms that I remember is them just being just really uncomfortable um, and, and being really upset with just really minor. I remember um, just trying to put a cannula in and everything was just sore. Um well, it's interesting because, like you know, Tom, you know, um, I spent ten years working with malaria, and mm-hmm. working not having malaria and working with, but I worked in West Africa working uh, with patients with malaria, and um, patients with malaria would say that their body just hurt, and it was only when I got malaria myself that I really understood what they meant, and I think that's the effect of the inflammatory response. I think the inflammatory response just makes you hurt, and I and and I think there's a lot of um, uh, there are a lot of parallels. You know, this is a big cytokine storm, and that hurts. 
and you feel dreadful. And I think that's what often then contributes to the sort of uh, fatigue afterwards. You know, you're completely been through the ringer. Uh, for want of a better word. And actually, that's become a very important part of my sort of acute management is actually warning these young youngsters, you know, that they probably are going to feel really rubbish for a little bit of time and not to push themselves and not to expect to be better, you know, by Saturday and to pace themselves for getting better. Um, and I think um, if, you, if you're warned about that and you take it easy, then I think it can be, if, you, if you, the children get very used to get feeling feeling dreadful one day and better the next and I think you know um, modifying that expectation a little bit has been helpful in the, in more recent times as we learn more about this um, because as people know you know the the uh, standard management for Kawasaki disease is intravenous immunoglobulin and um, but um, there's an ongoing study at the moment looking as to whether um, steroids used at the same time as immunoglobulin will, will improve um, outcomes in Kawasaki disease. So it was a huge debate at the beginning of um, uh, PIMS-TS as to whether immunoglobulin um, in the form of sort of three days of high dose pulse methylprednisolone um, would switch this inflammation off as well as um, uh, immunoglobulin could and of course this has got huge implications for resource poor countries who can't afford immunoglobulin you know where you could manage um, with steroids so this is a, a question that we have tried to answer with recovery trying to sort of see whether um, steroids are um, will switch um, inflammation off um, as well as immunoglobulin or better um, or whether you need both um, and the results of that are awaited but at the moment um, we use a combination of um, uh, intravenous steroids in the form of methylprednisolone um, and um, sometimes with additional immunoglobulin um, definitely using immunoglobulin the little children who look more like Kawasaki disease because that is a proven treatment and some of them then do go on and need biologicals as well in addition if the if the um, um, inflammation isn't switched off but the cornerstone of the management of this is um, to switch the inflammation off so I hope that was okay coming in with that super thank you very much um, so I suppose yeah that's been a fantastic recap um, of what's been going on in the last couple of years. Um, we did talk about some of the positives to come out of multidisciplinary working and the recovery trial um, and maybe finding some other stuff about other uh, things like Kawasaki's and, and um, trying to understand a bit more about that. We talked about uh, what we might have done well. Are there a, as a final point, is there anything that you think if we had our time again that we would do it slightly differently or um any other reflections i suppose you know this is this is uh we couldn't have done this any differently but i suppose um um to really be ready to do a, a, a fully randomized control trial of steroids versus immunoglobulin would have been very useful you know if we could have gone back um but actually, we were ready, and I think our response was, uh, I think the, the team at Evelina put that information out. I think we were all ready to look for this, and we were all ready to manage our, our patients. So I think, you know, um, and, and the input of a lot of people, you know, across the country and across the world to share their experience and be very open to being contacted and things, you know, I'm immensely grateful to colleagues um, all across the UK. Hmm. And it seems like those networks are kind of here to stay as well, which is yeah. great. Yeah. Super. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. It's a pleasure. Really, really good to talk to you both.
And I just wanted to say thank you to both Tom and to Jennifer for recording that podcast for us. Join us again next week for another episode of Dragon Bites.